I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Most of you know, but if you're uh, visiting with us today, we have, uh, we've been studying for the past couple of months uh, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And in recent weeks, we've been um, looking at this section of letters to the churches, uh, letters from Christ himself to seven real uh, local churches in Asia Minor. And along the way, we've learned that each one of these churches was unique, uh, that each of these churches had distinguishing marks. And because of that, each, uh, each one provides for us really a, a sample of the kinds of churches that exist throughout all of the history of the church at large. For example, uh, we've seen a church that fought valiantly against error and heresy and, and hated evil, but was rebuked for a lack of love for the Lord. Uh, we've seen a church spiritually alive, but facing martyrdom, a church that was material, materially poor and yet spiritually rich. We've seen a church that was willing to die for Christ, but strangely enough, wasn't willing to deal with compromise and began catering to the world. We've seen a church that exhibited love and faith only to be condemned for an unwillingness to practice church discipline and giving up on guarding the purity of the church. The last time we were together in this study, we saw a church that was physically alive only to be spiritually killed by sin. A church that was living off of its reputation but had no reality. A church that had a a spiritual problem of complacency, uh, that thought it had this, this uh, this great spiritual influence but was actually devoid of influence. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at a church that thought it was rich, but Christ says that it's poor. So we've seen all kinds of of different churches, and they portray for us the way that the church always is. There have always been churches known for their stand on sound doctrine, but without love. There have always been those who are known for their love, but are weak in doctrine. There have always been those churches that fight against evil, and there have been those who tolerate evil. There are churches that are spiritually alive and suffer for their testimony, and there are those who are spiritually dead and suffer nothing because nobody persecutes a dead church. There are those churches who think that they have a little, but actually have a lot, and those who think that they have a lot but in reality, have nothing. And you could go around our community, or for that matter, you could go around the the metro Atlanta area and find churches just like that. You would find some churches doing well in the eyes of Christ, uh, the Lord of the church, uh, those churches with sound doctrine and with biblical accountability and a growing love for Christ, and others, maybe the majority of churches not doing so well, overrun with pragmatism, going soft on on doctrine and theology and morality, some dead or dying and some with a lot of activity, but the church has really become 
uh, nothing more than just a social club. Well, this morning we come to another church, a, a local fellowship, and this particular local church and fellowship was faithful. And along with the letter to the church in Smyrna that we've already considered in chapter 2, this letter to the church in Philadelphia contains no warning, it contains no chastening, it contains no threatening, because for the most part, you have a regenerate church, and you have Christians who were godly, and Christians that were loyal and, and effective. This is the church in Philadelphia. This was the unassuming church, the church that was a modest, the church that was not pretentious or not arrogant, but a church that was word-centered and, and steadfast, a faithful church. And interestingly, a church where uh, enemies of God were forced to acknowledge God's special love and care for His own. Let me read our passage for us. So we're picking up here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie... I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown." He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new, Jerus- the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the way this starts out is, is familiar to us at At this point, it begins in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And so, this is, again, this is letter number 6, carried by messenger number 6, here designated by that term angel, which means messenger. And as I mentioned, this group of seven men left the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, carrying these letters back to the seven churches, along with the entire book of Revelation. And as they reached their respective cities, the group shrank down one by one. So now there are only two remaining who would have traveled 28 or, or so miles southeast from Sardis to reach Philadelphia. And after this letter is delivered, there's only one messenger left to deliver his letter to the final church at Laodicea. So as this, this letter is given, it is given to a faithful church. And always these letters begin by identifying the church and identifying the, the town and then the author. And so let's look first at the location of the church, the location of the church, which is the city of Philadelphia. 
not to be confused with the one in Pennsylvania. Uh, and as I, as I mentioned, it was located about 30 or so miles southeast of Sardis in the region of Lydia and in the valley of the Cogamus River, which was a tributary of the Hermas River. And at some point after 189 B.C., it had been founded by uh, a Pergamenian king, uh, either Eumenes II or his brother Attalus II, who succeeded him as king. And in recognition of the loyalty of this one brother, Attalus, to his, his older brother, Eumenes, this name was given to the city, the name Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. And so it was really uh, given that name in, in honor of the relationship between these two brothers. And it was a great location because it was on the best path for ascending from the Hermas Valley to the main plateau, which was about 1,500 feet higher above sea level. Uh, this, this particular path, along which trade from the harbor at Smyrna and from Lydia and those sort of northwest regions, was maintained with Phrygia and these other regions to the east. So this route served in that way. It was a trade route. It also served as the imperial postal road during the first century AD, and communications from Rome would come uh, from Rome. They would move through Troas and then over to Pergamum, Sardis, and then to Philadelphia and beyond. So this was a main line of imperial communication, and Philadelphia was a pivotal, pivotal stop uh, on that route. And the primary purpose for this city's establishment seems to be the, the consolidating or regulating, or you might even say educating those central regions that were subject to the Pergamenian kings, uh, rulers who wanted Philadelphia to become a, a hub of Greco-Asiatic uh, civilization so as to spread the Greek language and manners in the eastern parts of Lydia and Phrygia. So it had this missionary function uh, from, the, from its earliest days. It, 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 it helped to spread Hellenism to the east, even as far as the Orient. In fact, one of the indications of its success in this mission was the fact that the Lydian language practically uh, vanished by uh, A.D. 19 and was completely replaced by the Greek language as the one spoken by the people of that particular region. Something else to keep in mind is the fact that this land was particularly rich in agriculture, uh, having noticeable elements of volcanic ash because it was on a very active volcanic line. The city actually stood uh, on the slope of a hill looking over a long valley and had experienced numerous earthquakes. Uh, the people who lived there were, were devastated on many occasions by massive earthquakes that literally leveled their city and the city had to be rebuilt time and time again throughout its history. So these people, like many of you who've, who've spent some time in California, we have a number of families that have moved into this area and into come into our church from the West Coast. But these folks, uh, like many of you, were used to the aftershocks and, and used to not knowing what to expect in, in the movement of, of the earth. Uh, just to give you a, a pinpoint of history, in A.D. 17, a powerful earthquake destroyed 12 cities in that area, including both Sardis and Philadelphia. So it would have been rebuilt by the time John received and penned the Apocalypse in about A.D. 96, but 
these people lived in, in fear of earthquakes. Now, regarding the quake of AD 17, the Roman emperor Tiberius provided substantial help in rebuilding the city after this major calamity. And in return, Philadelphia joined the other cities that received help in, in erecting and building a monument in Rome as visible evidence of their gratitude for that help. Years later, imperial actions also affected Philadelphia in, in the 90s, but this time in an adverse way. Uh, due to the fertility of, of the soil and other factors, the people had turned to, to farming as a means of livelihood, specifically to the cultivating of vineyards. And apparently, because of a famine... In AD 92, the emperor Domitian issued an edict that at least half the vineyards in the provinces be cut down and no new ones planted. This particular action was was designed to increase production of corn, which the empire badly needed. But for the city of Philadelphia, it depended on the fruit of the vine, and though corn was also produced, it wasn't enough to support the area in years of bad harvest. So the people needed that wine production to fall back on when times were tough. And this series of events doubtless brought local disillusionment with the Roman emperor throughout this last decade of the first century. Now, what about the history of the church? That's a little bit about the city itself, but what about the history of the church? What what do we know about this particular local church, this particular fellowship? Well, basically nothing except what's in this particular letter. Uh, Because there's no mention of this particular church or congregation anywhere in Scripture. But somehow it got started. And as with some of the other churches in Asia Minor, its founding may have been connected to that tremendous, effective ministry in the city of Ephesus. Again, this is over in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. says that the word of God was spreading throughout all of Asia Minor, And so the word of God was sort of radiating out of the city of Ephesus. And so many of these cities in that particular region, those churches in those cities probably got their start as a consequence or result over time of this effective work going on in Ephesus and sort of, sort of moving out from that particular area. So some believers may have left Ephesus and gone over to Philadelphia and planted this church there. But a remarkable, remarkable church, as we'll see. But before we get to the character of the church, let's look first at the character of Christ. So that brings us to the identification of the author, the identification of the author. And the author is, as we've noted along the way in all of these letters, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus identifies himself to the church in verse 7 in this way. He says of himself that he is the one who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. So at least three, maybe four distinct elements about Christ, that Christ wants, again, he doesn't want um, the church to just know these things, but he wants them to know that he knows their situation and wants to bring specific qualities about himself to bear on on the specific context and circumstances these people are dealing with. And so the first thing that Christ mentions is that he is holy. He is the holy one. Jesus is the holy one. Now, this refers to none other than God. 
Uh, Such absolute holiness belongs to God and God alone. In fact, if you go back to to the Old Testament, uh, you'll see there very clearly that God is repeatedly identified as the one who is holy. In fact, he is called the Holy One in many passages, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, and Isaiah 43, Psalm 16, verse 10, Habakkuk 3, 3, and in a number of other places. And this is the Son's messianic title. He is the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 1, the demons acknowledged that. In Luke chapter 1, the angels called him the Holy One, and and Mary in that particular passage affirms that very thing. In John chapter 6 verse 69, Peter said, we have believed and have come to know that you, speaking to Christ, you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus identifying himself as the Holy One and then saying, is, is basically saying, I am God. That is the claim here. He shares the holy, sinless, pure nature of God. He is God, the Holy One. Which means that he cannot tolerate sin. Which is amazing if you think about it, because it's, it's as if Christ, with, with again these omniscient and holy eyes, is looking at this church and saying to this church, I know your deeds, and yet he gives no threat. He gives no judgment. He gives no condemnation. And so he tells them, listen, I'm viewing you, I'm seeing you with holy eyes, and yet this is my assessment of you, that there's nothing lacking. It's an amazing, amazing commendation of this church. And the concept of holiness comes from a, a Semitic root, meaning to cut. So to be holy is to be cut out, or you might say it's to be separate, or set apart. So in one sense, Jesus is absolutely sinless or separate from sin, but he is also set apart to God and for God. He is set apart for redemption as the second Adam. He is set apart by his Father to accomplish the Father's will, and he is set apart for retribution as the Lord of his church, correcting and purifying his church. And as the ruler of nations, dealing out retribution, judging the unbelieving world. And it is just for him to do that because he is the Holy One. So Christ is speaking here of, again, and and, and he does this in every letter, just speaking about his authority, his headship, his, his lordship over the church. And in this case, he's saying, my lordship is a holy lordship. Secondly, Jesus introduces himself as the true one. Jesus is the true one. So he is holy and true, and you'll see this combination again later on in in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. But he's saying, I am true. I am true in and of myself. I am the author of truth. I am the revealer of truth. And so when we are, if you will, confronted with Christ, we are confronted with the truth itself. Uh, This word also conveys the idea that Jesus is genuine and authentic rather than fake and unreal. So he is the true one, the genuine one, the real Messiah, the one who is truth in all that he says and does, which means that he can be trusted to keep his promises because he is true to his word. And as we'll see in a moment, 
this particular letter contains promise after promise after promise after promise. So Christ is saying at the very beginning that I'm going to give you these promises, but I want you to know that I'm true. And so every promise that I give will come to fruition because I cannot lie and I am the truth. Again, this would be a huge encouragement to the church for Christ to say, my people in Philadelphia, I am absolutely holy and I put a premium on the truth and my holiness and my truth have scrutinized you and there is nothing to condemn. So he is true and his lordship is a true lordship. And then next, Jesus claims to be the sovereign one. He is, Jesus is the sovereign one. That is to say, he is the one who has authority over kingdom entrance and blessings. Or as the text says, he has the key of David. Now, a key is a very simple symbol in Scripture. Whenever you see a key mentioned, you can usually equate that with authority or control. So whoever has the key has the control. Or whoever has the key has the authority. And in this case, Jesus says that he has authority over uh, several things. One, he has authority over the royal treasury. And this this comes comes out to us in the fact that the scripture referred to here is, is Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, which speaks of a time... Uh, when King Hezekiah was king over the Davidic kingdom and was served by a man named Eliakim as the royal treasurer. So Eliakim was the guardian of the king's treasures. And Eliakim alone possessed the keys needed to open the royal treasure vault, and only he could open the vault door giving access to Hezekiah's riches. Similarly, Christ is the sole guardian of the riches of God. And Jesus is also the one who controls the entrance into David's house, which ultimately refers to the Messianic kingdom. So Christ has the authority to either admit or to exclude because he is the genuine Messiah, the root and offspring of of David, which will be made clear if you continue to read in Revelation. It's stated in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, chapter 22, verse 16. So Christ has the key to all the riches and can dispense them at his own discretion. He can choose to bless his own who are faithful, and he alone can open the door to let whoever he wants in the kingdom. What did Jesus say? He says, no one comes to the Father but, what, through me. He went on to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. In John chapter 10, he said, I am the door. Now, obviously there were some hostile Jews attacking this church. Verse 9 calls them a synagogue of Satan. In fact, one of the church fathers, Ignatius, later debated some hostile Jews during his visit to Philadelphia. And these Jews would have denied that Jesus had the key of David. In fact, they would have vehemently rejected the claim that Christ alone could open the treasure house of God's blessings. Now, they would have outright denied 
that Jesus could give entrance into the kingdom, but they were wrong. According to chapter 1, we've already looked at this back in chapter 1, verse 18, there's a, uh, a similar statement. In fact, that, that's, that verse mentions uh, another set of keys. He says Jesus, in that particular verse, verse 18, has the keys of death and of Hades. In other words, Jesus has the authority to decide who dies and who lives and, and the timing of all of that. And he is the one who has power over death to admit people into the grave. He alone can, can get them out of the grave because he is the one with the keys. And here, Jesus also claims that he has the key to salvation and blessing. He has the authority to save and the authority to leave a person in a state of gracelessness. He can shut the treasure house or he can open it. That is his prerogative. And then fourthly, we have this. Jesus is the omnipotent one. He is the omnipotent one. Notice what it says. He is the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens. What that simply means is that whatever he does, that's it. Only he has the power. Without Christ, no salvation. With Christ, no one can stand against his saving purpose. Without Christ, no blessing. In Christ, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings... And no one can stop it because no one can stand against him. So the author is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he identifies himself as God, the holy God, the true God, the sovereign God, and the all-powerful God. Now think about being in that church in Philadelphia and the messenger begins to to read this letter and the first few words, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, in light of what has been said in the previous letters, right? So only one of those previous five letters, there, there was no, no condemnation. Right, So four out of those five, there was some form of correction or rebuke. And so you're sitting there and you're listening. This is the letter to, you, to, your, to the church that you're a part of. And you start to hear these sort of these thunderous claims, right? This is Christ writing to you. This is the holy one. This is the true one. This is the one who has the key. This is the one that when he decides something, that's it. Well, if you were sitting there listening to that, you would probably start to cringe, Right? All these reminders of the holiness and the genuineness of the Messiah and the fact that he's God and the fact that he's authoritative and the fact that he has the control and he's the one with all of the power. You would probably begin to cringe figuring that the holy and the true and the sovereign and the almighty Christ is going to pound us for something, right? And so you hold your breath and wait for it. But you'd be waiting for the paragraph that never comes. Why? Not because you're perfect. Uh, uh, not because you're sinless. Not because there's, there's no sin in 
the church, but because there is no glaring flaw. Because Christ looks at you, he looks at the church, and says there is no obvious thing lacking in the church. You see, the key had opened salvation, the key had opened blessing, the key had opened opportunity for ministry for this particular church, it had opened up opportunities for evangelism for this particular church, and the church in Philadelphia was faithful, faithful. Which takes us next to this commendation from Christ. The commendation from Christ. And you'll notice that there, again, is no criticism, only praise. And Jesus says this, verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. So Jesus uh, sort of interjects this particular encouragement once again referring to the sure entrance into the Messianic kingdom that he's given to his people. So he's he's simply saying the kingdom is yours, and if you're in, you cannot be put out, and if others are out, they cannot get in unless they go through Christ. And so he says, I know your deeds because or that you have a little power and have kept my word And have not denied my name. I know your deeds. Again, we've heard this time and time again through these letters. I know your deeds. I know your works. And he says that you have a little power. Referring, I think, to the church's limited influence because of its numerical smallness. Now, you've got to remember, this is not, when you read this, it's easy to sort of take it as as a criticism. Right? I mean, when he says you have a little power, it sounds like he's, he's getting onto them because they have such little power. But this is really in the context of commendation. And so this is not, this is not a sin issue. Right? He's not saying you have a little power and you ought to have a lot of power. He's saying you've got power for your smallness. You have spiritual power. You're just not very large. You alone are not going to change the world, but you've got a little power for such a small group. So spiritual power was definitely flowing through that church. Christ is simply contrasting the church's smallness with its obedience to Christ's word in a particular situation when its members had been called upon to deny his name. So they were characterized by power, But they were also characterized by obedience. Notice what it says. They kept his word. And that's just another way of saying that they obeyed Christ's word. They obeyed it. They did what Christ told them to do. They were bound to it and they did not deviate from a pattern of obedience. Again, that's that's what disciples do, right? I mean, disciples consistently in their lives have a a pattern of hearing the word of Christ and obeying the word of Christ. John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So you keep his words, you belong to him. Uh, You don't keep his words, you don't love him. 
So this was a, a saved church, and these people were characteristically obedient. It's not, it's not complicated, really. The whole idea of having a congregation of people who just do what the Bible says is, is, what, is what is pleasing to the Lord of the church. It's as simple as that. It's about submitting to and following diligently the word of Christ. And then there's this other piece, another piece to this. They were also characterized by loyalty. Now, we don't know who all of the detractors were or the intimidators or even how fierce the persecution might have been, but the church had faced a trial. They had been under some kind of pressure. Likely, it was the Jews that were hammering like crazy on these people, trying to get them to disregard the teaching of Christ and to deny Him. But the people survived this crisis without faltering. Even though they were, as the text says, few in number. So throughout it all, they did not deny his name. Just another way way of saying that they were loyal to Christ. In spite of the pressure, in spite of the affliction, in spite of the, the severity of the persecution, they stood by Christ. And then there is a reference to their endurance. Notice the beginning of verse 10. He mentions this, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. You've kept the word of my perseverance. Which could refer to either his requirement to persevere or the perseverance which Christ himself displayed. Believers are certainly commanded to endure. But the force here is probably that we we are to follow Christ's example of enduring patiently. Over in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. But more literally, it's keep their keep the faith of Jesus. So not so much their faith in him, but really following the example of Christ in his steadfastness and his perseverance and endurance. And if anyone ever persevered, it was Jesus, right? And this church did it the way Christ did it. And it wasn't always easy. Sometimes it was difficult. But they persevered. They were steadfast. So so here's a little church, not big, not famous in the world's eyes, but there was really nothing scandalous Nothing devastating or nothing, and nothing lacking in the church. Nothing scandalous going on that would have stained the reputation of the gospel and of Christ. And so they had these things, and Christ commends them for it. He says, you have power, you have obedience, you have loyalty, you have endurance. And because of these things, the Lord gives to them some amazing Promises. And that takes us to the promises from Christ. Verse 9. Behold, I will, notice these promises, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world 
to test those who dwell on the earth. So four, I think, four promises here. Uh, and and you, you might even say he had, he's already made back in verse 8 sort of a, a promise of sorts when he mentioned giving the church an open door which no one can shut. And again, I think the main idea there is that he has welcomed them into the sphere of salvation and granted them admission into his kingdom. And there's nothing that, that anyone can do in this particular situation, nothing that the Jews can do to thwart that. So that promise is about eternal salvation and eternal security. So if we're talking about the kingdom and about actually arriving there and being preserved by God to the end, he's saying, you look small, you look vulnerable, you, you appear to be powerless, you look as though you cannot be sustained and that you won't pers- persevere and that you'll apostatize. But you will persevere because you will be preserved. You will be preserved. And your faith will not be destroyed. Because you have been called and because you have been protected by the Holy Lord. The true Lord. The supreme Lord. But there's another idea that that some people believe is bound up in that promise in verse 8. And that is the thought that Christ has given them a service, or you might even say an evangelistic opportunity. And it's because of what is mentioned in verse 9. And that brings us to this this first, I guess in these verses, the first promise that Jesus makes there is is that he says, I will give you some of the synagogue as your converts. Now, the synagogue of Satan was also mentioned, as we said, back in chapter 2, verse 9 and was apparently composed of professing Jews worshiping in the synagogue there and claiming to be the true Israel. But, the text says, they were false. Not because they were not ethnic Jews, not because they were not Jews physically, but because they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and as as well not only rejected Christ, but rejected those who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're going to be an instrument for salvation. Now, an open door, by the way, was an image that the Apostle Paul used a lot. In fact, he, he, he used it when he, when he wanted to talk about freedom for proclaiming the gospel. Uh, and, and, and in every case was referring to opportunities to proclaim Christ. We see this, for example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, where Paul reports back to the church at Antioch about the open door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he mentions a wide door for effective service. In 2 Corinthians 2, 12, he used it in reference to preaching the gospel of Christ. In Colossians 4, 3, Paul mentioned a door for the word and his desire to declare the mystery of Christ. So Paul never used these terms open and closed doors in the context of personal decision making, which is how, honestly, we hear it used more often today. People talk about the will of God in their life, and they refer to God opening a door or closing a door, and they use that really in the context of of knowing and, and, and following God's will. But Paul didn't use it in that sense. He always used this terminology to refer to opportunities for service and opportunities for for ministry and evangelism in particular. 
And this is what Jesus is saying, that some of the very Jews that are persecuting you are going to come to Christ and be saved. Another promise says, I will make some of the synagogue come and do homage before your feet. That is to say, I will cause these false Jews to do homage before Gentile Christians. Now, why is that significant? That's significant because that is the exact opposite of what the Old Testament predicted about Israel in her kingdom. A few passages here. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, thus says the Lord, The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God, they say. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation, and you will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. God says, all these nations are, are going to bow down to you. That's what the Jews thought. They believed all the world would eventually bow down to them. And they should have believed that because of the text here. Also, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Isaiah 60 verse 14 says the same thing. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So what is Isaiah saying? He's saying that the day is going to come when the whole world bows down to the Jewish people. But what is the letter from Jesus to the Philadelphian church saying? It's saying that that day hasn't yet come. And for now, the Jews are going to, some of them, bow down at your feet. And it looks forward to a time when the whole church will enter into the Messianic kingdom and the people of Israel will have an entirely different attitude towards the church as Christ's bride because they will by then have turned to Christ themselves. So this has to do with the future repentance of Israel resulting in respectful treatment of the church. And Christ reverses the application of Isaiah 60 verse 14 and other Old Testament passages to make them apply to a predominantly Gentile church rather than Israel as the recipients of the homage. The Jews will come and bow and they will know of God's love for this faithful group of Christians, which is... The third promise, really, in verse 9, I will make them to know that I love you. 
These false Jews would have scoffed at the claim of the Philadelphian church that they were objects of God's love, but that will change when Israel repents. And even from an eschatological perspective, an awareness of this loving relationship will characterize will characterize a convinced Jew at the time of the end as he or she looks back upon this period of persecution. Actually, this will precede the coming and the bowing down. Before they do that, they will first know that Christ loved this church. In other words, they will be given the eyes to see it. Yes, God has loved you, and I want to be in that love and they will bow the knee. And someday, the Lord will finally use the church to provoke Israel to salvation on a national scale. So there will be this time of vindication. There will, there will be this time of exaltation, not so much our exaltation or the exaltation of the church, but really the exaltation of God's redeeming love, Christ's love. And that brings us to Another promise there in verse 10, I will deliver you from the predicted period of future suffering on the earth. That is to say that he will remove them from the scene of suffering, which could have been some simple historical reference to sparing the church in Philadelphia from some trouble when another wave of persecution came in the future. But whatever brief historical sense that that promise had would have been swallowed up in the vastness of the promise. Because on a much bigger and grander scale, this is about a time of trouble that would overtake the world, but would not overtake them. That imminent period that will impact the whole world just prior to Christ's personal return to the earth. This time known as the messianic woes, a time known as the tribulation or, or the, the great tribulation. Those things that are foretold in the visions beginning at Revelation chapter 6 as coming upon the whole world, a time of distress on the world before the coming of Christ. Daniel calls it the 70th week, that one seven-year period still left in which God will deal with Israel, and a time designed to test the wicked, either to lead them to repentance or to punish them for failing to repent. It is Jacob's trouble a unique time when ethnic Israel will be dealt with during the tribulation so that the non-elect can be judged and the remnant be brought in according to Romans chapter 11. So this is about Christ's promise to keep the church completely outside of what is called the hour of testing. And of course, we're dealing with the doctrine of the rapture. That's just the Latin term meaning to, a rapturo, meaning to snatch or to catch away. Or to, or to pluck or to seize. We don't have time to explore all of that fully this morning. We'll be actually in a few weeks coming back to that particular uh, teaching because we'll be picking up in our series in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I want you to notice this, the reason for this. Why will Christ do this? Why this promised extraction? Why this promise of exemption from that horrific hour? Because they kept the word of Christ's endurance. They emulated him. They successfully passed all the tests, tests to try their faith, persecution, animosity, and hostility. And their faith was found to be genuine. 
They maintained their power. They maintained their obedience. They maintained their loyalty and they endured it all. And he says, because you have passed so many tests, I'm going to spare you the great future one. It's like being in high school and getting to the end of the semester. Some of you recently went through this phase. Come to the end of a school year, you come to that time where you are, are, are supposed to be taking final exams, but if you've done well throughout the semester and you've been a good student, then your teacher lets you skip the final exam. You're exempt. Why? Because you've done well through the other tests. You've done well enough on the other tests and quizzes throughout the semester. Jesus is, I think, just telling the church, there's coming a test at the very end. It's an eschatological test, but you're not going to have to take it because there's nothing to prove. So this future hour of testing, this time of tribulation, it's not a local thing. It can't be because it's coming upon the whole world. And it cannot be a time of testing designed for the church because the church is under trial now. And the true saints will pass the test. So Jesus says to the faithful church, you won't be there for the final. It's for unbelievers. It's literally, the, the word is the earth dwellers. It's a, it's a technical phrase really in the book of Revelation to speak about those who are on earth during this time of this seven-year tribulation, including Israel. Then we have in verse 11 this exhortation from Christ. Notice, he says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So here, Jesus promises to return soon to initiate the hour of trial on the earth, but more relevant to those in the church to deliver them from their present circumstances, a deliverance of the faithful that will occur in conjunction with his coming. And Christ's near return leaves only one course of action open to the faithful. To hold fast what you have. Which is sort of a motto for each church. Back in chapter 2 verse 25, he said to the church at Thyatira, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. To the degree of progress that you've made, and in view of the rich treasure you have already been given, your eternal, glorious, righteous life, cling tenaciously to that, in resistance against those who are trying to take it away, who would love to take away your crown. In other words, keep on keeping on. Remain faithful. Hold fast, which in no way undermines the issue of eternal security. Clearly, we are kept by the power of God, but our part is to continue to believe, to endure. And yes, God secures us, but he does it by giving us a persevering faith. Now, if all those promises weren't enough, hang on, because we still have the promise to the overcomer. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. If you think about it, the... These are really, you might say, the sixth and the seventh promises given to this church. And and these actually apply to all believers. And they are promises that draw heavily upon the picture of the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. 
So what are they? What are the rewards of perseverance? Well, there's the promise of a stable relationship with God, which again, if you're living in, a, in an area where you're used to earthquakes and, and the ground shaking underneath your feet, it's interesting that he would say this, right? I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. Now, there's no, no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that comes down from heaven is all temple. And Christ's victorious ones are its living stones and pillars. That is to say, Christians will be permanent. That they will continue in His presence for all eternity. Which is underscored by that second line which makes separation an impossibility. Then there's the promise of an absolute assurance of eternal life, which is indicated by the believer's reception of this new name, this threefold name. And I will write on him, and just notice all the possessives here. My this, my that, my God, my, 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 my name, God's city, all of this. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So we, have, we will have the name of God which is equivalent to belonging to him. We will have the name of the city of God, which means the right of citizenship in the new Jerusalem. And we will have Christ's new name, which symbolizes the full disclosure of of Christ's character. Which means that when we see Christ, his persona will take on totally new dimensions. And what we may have called him and understood by the name will pale in the reality of what we actually see. And there will be a new name to describe it, a new name to describe him. And and he will give us that new name, and we will be privileged to call him by it. And then finally, this familiar command to heed. A familiar invitation, verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. An invitation to hear and heed what the Spirit through Christ has said. To have an ear of faith and a soft heart. And it's not just for them, it's for you. It's for you to consider and to, to, to comply with these things. For you to be moved to obey. So the question is, do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that you are swept up in this grand plan? Do you believe that there is an urgency and that Christ could come at any moment? Or have you been sort of sitting back on your laurels or or perhaps you've been calculating or trying to imagine when things will occur because of some sign? We're to be people of faith. Christ's coming is imminent and the judgment to follow is imminent. We're to overcome and hold fast the word of his perseverance. We're to preach the word and make disciples and get about the business of a non-tribulation period which has enough afflictions of its own. We're not here to organize a nice, neat club to build some nice buildings so that your kids can have a nice place to grow up in, to have a nice life so that we can put some nice photo albums together and grow old and go to our grave and say, wow, wasn't that a nice, wonderful church? That's not why we assemble. We assemble 
to hold fast regardless of what comes. To bring the truth. To have an open door of opportunity that doesn't get shut. To trust the Lord for all of that. To know that we might be gathering today for the last time before He comes. And if it's not the last time, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't know that because we're living with just as much urgency as if it were. What Jesus wants is for us to be ready and prepared. His return for us is imminent. It is near. In fact, there are, just as an example, Edgar Wisenot was a former NASA rocket engineer turned prophecy teacher who became famous through a booklet that he wrote titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Naturally, he went on to publish a revised edition. Listen, the Lord doesn't want us to do that. The Lord doesn't want us to do that. The rapture is a signless event anyway. It, it will be unexpected. It will suddenly happen. And, and, we, and the reason we, people do that, we, we, get, we get caught up in that, right? We like to calculate. We like to speculate. But we mustn't do that. Christ wants us to be ready. Always ready. To be vigilant and sober to be faithful and obedient, to know that He is holy and to know that He is true and to know that He is the one who has and holds the key. To keep the word of Christ, to be steadfast. Oh, the, blessed, the blessedness of being a faithful church. May God help us to be like the church at Philadelphia, unassuming, modest, but word-centered and steadfast. Let's stand for prayer. Our God, thank you for this, this letter. Regardless of what we may or may not know definitively about the timing and the details of these future events, they will happen. And we accept whatever your plan is and whatever your timing is, but we do want to live in the imminent urgency of Christ's return. We want to be a people of faith. Help us to learn, Lord, the lessons given to us, not only in this letter, but in all the letters, the lessons given to these churches. May you give us grace. May we look to what we've been told will come in will come to the overcomers and find strength and to be resolved, to be steadfast and centered upon your word. May you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.